0: Father, thank you for your word, thank you for your spirit who takes what is yours and teaches it to us and applies it to us and transforms us with your truth. Thank you, we love you, and we pray you do that for us this evening, please, and we pray for it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in 2 Samuel, Um, monarchy still. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning, who's been here since Genesis? Oh, good, good, I'm impressed. Where's everyone else? Oh, okay. We've been pointing out, sort of like a tour guide, I've been pointing out big chapters along the way in the Old Testament, okay? What was one of the first big chapters? Genesis chapter 12, and what did it go with? The Abrahamic covenant, and Genesis chapter 15 is where the actual covenant hit, and so 12 and 15, big, big chapters, okay? Next big chapter, it's in the next book, Exodus chapter 20, who said, yes, Sherry, 20, chapter 20, why Exodus chapter 20? Ten commandments, Ten commandments. then what? Forty. Forty. Oh, boom! Why chapter forty? Why Exodus chapter forty? The tabernacle. God comes down and dwells with His people. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy was the next one, and there are actually three chapters. I hear people guessing. 28, 29, and 30. It's the key to unlocking the whole Old Testament. I'll bless those who bless my people, and I'll curse those who don't. Discipline, he, he blesses the obedient, and he disciplines the disobedient. And 28, 29, and 30 of Deuteronomy. Next one to add to your list 2 Samuel 7. Humongous chapter in the Old Testament and in the scripture. 2 Samuel 7, but sometimes when we're looking at something, we're not really sure what we're looking at. So tonight, I want to unpack for you 2 Samuel chapter 7. One chapter, I have three objectives and 55 minutes. We're going to do a 50,000-foot perspective on the Davidic covenant, so that's one objective. Second objective is we're going to look at chapter 7 from David's point of view. Third objective is we're going to apply chapter 7 to our lives today. Yeah, now, here's where buckle up right now. What I have to do is give you a very brief history of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. You say, the kingdom of God. Indeed. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It's very familiar to you. It's called, whether it's right or wrongly called, it's called the Lord's Prayer. Most of you remember it like I do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next part? (laughs) Thy kingdom Come on as it is what are disciples to pray for? Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom has not fully and finally come yet. What are we praying for? It to come. Because it already exists there. We're praying that it comes here. What? Acts chapter 1. You have your Bibles? Acts chapter 1. I know that's in the New Testament. It's okay. It's still in the Bible. We're good. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. What do the disciples say to Jesus right before he ascends? Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Lord, is it at this time that you will... Restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and days. See ya. <laughs> I'll be in touch. <laughs> what are the first disciples looking for? Thy kingdom come. Why would they be looking for thy kingdom come? Dun dun-da-da. Dun, dun. In the Abrahamic covenant, God promised a coming time when there would be a kingdom ruled by him or his people on the earth. It actually began in heaven when he created the heavenly beings. He's created a kingdom there. What happened? Rebellion. One kingdom breaks into two. A good one and a naughty one, (laughs) right? Right, so far so good? Okay, God then brings the kingdom to the earth and who does he put in charge of it? Adam and Eve. Somebody snuck in the back door. What happened? One kingdom, oh, split off into two. Which is why Genesis is the family tree of faith. Because we have two kingdoms growing along side by side. You say, you've lost your mind. Remember what Jesus says about the wheat and the tares? They look the same. Don't pull them up until the end because they look the same. But my angels will know the difference. There have always been two kingdoms growing up side by side. So far so good? All right. So, we begin in a garden. Where do we end? In Revelation, in a garden. Not coincidental. This garden is where God creates and places Adam and Eve. God shows up to a person, or, or, to, uh, oh, after, the, after uh, the fall. He shows up to a person. Abraham, he shows up to him in Ur, and he gives him a promise, which then becomes a covenant in Genesis chapter 15. Okay, what does he say about uh, the promises that he makes? That's unilateral, meaning it's one way. He, he doesn't in the Abrahamic covenant says, if you'll do this, I'll do this. God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you a lot of kids, and I'm going to make you a blessing. Right? That's what God says to Abraham. This all relies on God for its fulfillment. So he says to Abraham, this is unilateral, it's unconditional, there's no if-thens, and it's unending. It's a forever covenant, which we get by Genesis 17. This covenant which will go on forever. Abrahamic covenant, unilateral, unconditional, unending. It has three promises, land, seed, and blessing. As we go through the whole rest of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, you see these, it's like train tracks that run all through the Old and New Testaments because these are describing the kingdom of God. Here's what it looked like in the Old Testament. Here's what it's going to look like in the New Testament. And then here's what it's going to look like at the end, which is what we're just touching on in our sermon series. The land promise He reinforces that in Deuteronomy 31 through 10. When did the land get taken away? 586. When Babylon came in and uh, deported them. Right at that time, this other strange thing, which you may not have ever heard of before, Luke 21, 24. What does Luke 21, 24 say? Go ahead, you have your Bibles. Look at Luke 21, 24. What does it say? This is so key. Luke twenty one twenty four. What does it say? Until the what? The time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. This is one of those things you just went, whoop, You read right over and you said, huh, well, isn't that interesting? There's the time of the Gentiles. <laughs> time of the Gentiles started in 586, and until the time of the Gentiles is finished, the Lord is going to be focused on the church, which was a mystery to those people in the Old Testament. The seed, it started off with, to Abraham, I'm going to make your, the, your children, your progeny, More numerous than the sands on the seashore. It then turned into, by the time we got a little bit later, like Deuteronomy 17, he says there's a greater prophet that's going to come. And then he said, kings are going to come from your line. And so it turns into kings. And then more specifically, it turns into the Messiah. Remember Paul says, as to in Galatians, he talks about, and the seed by whom I mean Jesus. Remember that part? Okay. Blessing. How, if I was in the Old Testament, how did I get a blessing? Mosaic Covenant. If I obeyed, I was blessed. If I disobeyed, I was disciplined. Right? That's how I got a blessing. Ah, Jeremiah 31. We're not going to take time to read it. We don't have time. Jeremiah 31, God shows up again, and he says, hey, been thinking about that Old Covenant. I want to replace it with what's called the new covenant and it's going to give you four things a new mind a new heart the indwelling holy spirit and the forgiveness of sins sound familiar this is in jeremiah chapter 31 god says this is what i'm going to do have you already heard all this oh my gosh yes you have okay sorry well i'm pretty excited You come to Jesus' time, and Jesus comes to offer what? The Davidic kingdom as the Davidic ruler. Why would he do that? Matthew chapter 1. He's in the line of David. He's the Davidic king. He comes, he offers the kingdom to the nation. They refuse it. He says, great, I got a plan called the church that you've never heard of before, and here's what's going to happen. The land is not going to be yours. You're not going to really get to rule over all the land like originally uh, planned. That'll happen over here. Right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning from where? Heaven. And the blessing, how does the blessing come to the church? Because we got the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because the new covenant has been cut. Whose blood got used? Jesus. This is the whole book of Hebrews, which we've already gone through, right? The, the new covenant has been cut in his blood, and guess who gets the blessings? Those who are in the church. New mind, new heart, new, uh, uh, forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Those are the blessings. Why does he give us the blessings? To make his people jealous. Hey, we got your stuff. That stuff you were supposed to have, we got it. It's way cool. (laughs) You want it? And so we are a testimony also to the Jewish people. Okay, then we're going to hit the tribulation, then we'll get a millennial kingdom, and that's when he reestablishes the kingdom on earth. And then we have the eternal kingdom. Okay, whoosh, that's the kingdom of God, start to finish. Glad you've heard of it before. (laughs) All of this flowed out of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, land, seed, blessing. What you're going to see in 2 Samuel 7 is the amplification of the seed promise. We've already had this one. We're not to this one yet. It's this one right here. The seed promise. Okay. So the Davidic covenant. Let's take a look at the Davidic covenant. Uh, Well, let me read it. Gosh, i got to read the whole thing. Uh, So when King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet... Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind for the Lord is with you. (laughs) Not so fast, Nathan. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan goes back to David and told him everything the Lord had said. Then King David goes in and sat before the Lord in the tent and prayed, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, Sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O Sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, Sovereign Lord, because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There was no one like you. We've never even heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth is like your people Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations and gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your very own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, I am your servant. Do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. And may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say, The Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer to you because you have revealed all this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. A dynasty of kings. For you are God, O sovereign Lord, your words are truth, and you have promised these good things to your servant. And now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you have spoken. When you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. Psalm 89 also has a little bit about a reference to this where it's actually called a covenant. But this is called the Davidic Covenant. Basically, it covers three things. Remember, we're flying. 50,000-foot flyover of the Davidic Covenant. Its main features, it covers a house. God promises David a house. That's his physical descendants. It promises him a kingdom. That's the geopolitical entity he'd rule. And it promises him a throne, the authority as king vested in him, its characteristics. So its main features, its characteristics, it's unilateral. He did not say to David, if you do this, then I will do this. He said, this is what I'm doing. It's unilateral. It's unending. There's the Psalm 89 reference. Well, we'll just read it. Psalm 89, 3 and 4. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with David, my chosen servant. I have sworn this oath to him. I will establish your descendants as kings forever. They will sit on your throne from now until eternity. Pretty clear. Psalm 89. So it's unending, it's unilateral, it's unending, it's unconditional, it relies on God for its fulfillment entirely. And literal, it's going to take place on the earth, right? Right? Good, all right. How about, how would the people in the Old Testament have understood this? Would they have understood it the way I've explained it? Let's look. David's house, so his descendants, his line continues throughout the Old Testament. Remember by the time we hit Matthew 1.1? Matthew 1, chapter 1. 1.1. 1.1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. 12 through 17, he goes through uh, all the way, uh, backs him up from the Babylonian exile, uh, the 14 generations, 14, 14, to get to the Messiah. David's house. His descendants keep going. They are still counted and reckoned as his descendants. Jesus is his descendant. Why is that important? Because Jesus could not have offered the Davidic kingdom to them if he wasn't from the line of David, right? Did any Pharisee ever refute the fact that he was of the line of David? Nope. And believe you me, they would have checked. They couldn't get him on that one. Oh gosh, he is from the line of David. Oh golly, what are we going to do? we got to find something else. So there's no refuting or disputing the fact that he is of the line of David. His house therefore continued through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. How about David's kingdom? The geopolitical entity over which He ruled or one of his descendants would rule. It ended for a time in 586 with Nebuchadnezzar and that kicked off the times of the Gentiles. We are in the times of the Gentiles right now. And according to Romans in chapter 11, it talks about the end of the time of the Gentiles where God will again switch his focus from the church over here to his people Ethnic Israel. So David's kingdom is still out there. Is it amazing that there's even a place today called Israel? Yes. (laughs) Many people have tried to wipe it off the map. David's house, David's kingdom, David's throne, which is his right to rule. I listed a whole bunch of verses in there which you can look up. But it's anticipated Even to this day. How do I know that? Well, we already referenced Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, Thy, Daddy, thy kingdom come. Meaning it's not here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Send it, Daddy, send the kingdom. Bring it. David's throne, his right to rule, is still in force and still in place at the end of the Old Testament, beginning in the New Testament. So how about in the New Testament? We already read Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. How about his house, his kingdom, and throne? Okay, let's look at Luke chapter 1. Look at Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Chapter 1, 32 and 33. This is where the angel comes and talks to Mary. So like starting in verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel, how long? Forever. His kingdom will never end. House, kingdom, throne. Do you think the angel is just making up words to share with Mary? Let's assume no. What three words show up in these verses? House, meaning his descendants, his lineage, kingdom, geopolitical entity, and he will reign. He will have the right to rule over this thing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. It's coming. His kingdom is coming. Yes, the king is coming, and his kingdom is coming. David's house, kingdom, and throne... You, when you've read over this, you go, oh, okay, that's okay. You didn't understand there are three code words in there that are connecting it back to the Davidic covenant. Okay, David's house, David's house, kingdom, and throne. What else does, when David finds this news out, where does he go? He goes to the tent. Because when you have a throne, you, you kind of have to have a temple, because that's where the presence of God is. You got the king and then you got the presence of God. Hmm. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now from heaven, not yet from earth. So what has he also put in place even now? A temple made up of living stones. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Come on, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 16. Paul writes and he says, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? We are a spiritual temple. He's ruling and reigning, and we are his spiritual temple. You and I are stones in that spiritual temple. And just like David, remember we talked about David is running around in the desert, he's anointed a whole bunch of years before he actually becomes king, right? And you thought, oh gosh, poor David. Yeah, poor David, but look who he's a pattern for. Look what God does. Jesus has been anointed king, but like David is waiting on God's timing to take his throne. Really? Gosh, some really smart person just made up the Bible. (laughs) Is it this ought to just, you ought to say, oh my goodness, how can I not trust this? The things that are in it are beyond any even really smart person trying to figure out and, and connect all these things way back in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, It's almost like somebody kind of from the top put it together. I don't know. It's crazy. Crazy. David's house, kingdom, and throne. They launch us into the New Testament. Now, the timing of the coming kingdom and throne, Daniel and Revelation. God wants us to know enough Not everything, but he wants us to know enough. And so he gives us an Old Testament revelation, and that's Daniel. And he gives us a New Testament revelation called Revelation. Those are bookends. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. And the book of the Revelation is all about the coming of the kingdom of God and how he's going to do that. Because this is, this is not Jerry's world. This is Jesus' world. The earth is his arena to take care of everything that has not been taken care of yet. Someone has challenged, never threatened, but challenged God's right to rule. Who is that person? Has that ever been dealt with? Got dealt with at the cross... But it hasn't been enacted fully yet. But it will be. And that's the book of the Revelation. That's why Cody said in the opening message on the series on these churches is Jesus wins in the end. It will be decided decisively and God's right to rule will be established beyond question. But right now we're living in a time when there's two kingdoms running around and God's right to rule has been challenged. Not threatened, but challenged. And God has not yet finished with the challenger and all the people who go with him. And this is the arena. The planet Earth is the arena where he will bring all of that to a conclusion. Whatever you believe about creation and how big the universe is and all that stuff, he has picked this ball, 93 million miles from the sun, to start and finish saying to the universe, this is who I am. And this is what I'm like. And guess what? We're going to have front row seats. The timing of the coming kingdom and throne is a subject of Daniel and Revelation. What are the implications of the Davidic covenant? Israel must be preserved as a nation. Israel must... That doesn't mean everything she does is right. Okay? But Israel must be preserved as a nation. Why? Because the Davidic covenant has the Davidic ruler ruling over a geopolitical entity called Israel from a real, literal, earthly throne. That's what they expected in the Old Testament. That's what they expected in the New Testament, because that's what it says. Jesus must, okay, Israel must be brought back into the land of her inheritance, In fact, when we get to Isaiah, and you might want to start reading Isaiah now, because we do that in two nights. We'll do 1 to 39, and then we'll do 40 to 66. So you might want to start reading now, but there's actually a second Exodus coming. Write it down. Jesus must return to the earth bodily and literally. Why? Because he's got to fulfill the Davidic covenant which says not only is he a descendant of David, but he's going to rule over a geopolitical entity called Israel, and he's going to rule from the throne. That's what it says. You already agreed with me. That's what it says. That's what it says. I'm not pulling a fast one on you. That's what it says. A literal earthly kingdom must exist for him. And his kingdom will become an eternal kingdom. Really? It's almost like that's what the Bible says. Look, his kingdom, called the Millennial Kingdom, it's in Revelation, we'll get to it later. The Millennial Kingdom, a thousand years of his ruling and reigning on the earth. The topography of the earth is going to change. And Jerusalem is actually going to become the most important place on the earth. This 1,000 years then gives way to an eternal kingdom. How else does Jesus rule and reign forever according to the Davidic covenant? It's like this. He says, here's how it's all going down. There's going to be a tribulation period for seven years. That's going to usher in a 1,000-year millennial kingdom where every promise I ever made to Israel is going to be fulfilled including 2 Samuel 7. From that point, at the end of that, there was another big battle, and then he ushers in the eternal kingdom. Yes! Okay. That is a very brief overview of the kingdom of God. What's the importance of the Davidic covenant? Two big points. There is a church today... Because of God's faithfulness to his promise to David, bringing Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Savior, through his house, his family tree. Remember that? Have I told you about Nazareth yet? Ah, oh, it's not Christmas. Mm. I'll tell you again at Christmas. Okay, so Jesus is, is uh, from a little town called Nazareth, Right? where were mommy and daddy from? Nazareth. Nazareth was a little town, maybe 125, maybe 200 people, and it was a stopping point. It was just a, like a hotel spot. You were traveling from the big cities, and you, ha- you got halfway through, halfway through your journey, and you'd stop in Nazareth, and you'd get in a hotel room. I no problem with that. So Nazareth in Hebrew, a Tzadi, doesn't have uh, an English or, or even, uh, it doesn't even have a Greek equivalent. So by the time it gets to English, we say Nazareth, but it comes from Netzer. Netzer. You know what a Netzer is? So you, you got, we got live oaks. Right? And every once in a while, those pesky little things, they send up more little oak trees out of the roots. Right? That's a netzer. What is this town? This is a, this is a little branch town. A what? A little branch town. What did it say in Isaiah 11? A little branch one will come to pass. And he's my guy. He's coming out of the stump of Jesse. And my little branch one is the Messiah. Guess what the people of Nazareth thought? Hey, we believe that. And they got together in faith. And they had this little tiny town. And they said, we're the town that believes the little branch one is going to come from here. And what did God do? The little branch one came from the faith of those people who got together in a town we would call Nazareth. And he was, came out of there, just like it says in Scripture. And that's why people, when they go to Matthew and they go, in chapter, oh, gee, where is it? It's chapter 1, chapter 2. Everybody wants to point to this, and they go, look, there's no verse in the Bible that says this. Mm. Is that? Oh, here it is. Yeah, Matthew two twenty-three. Matthew two twenty-three. So Herod dies. Joseph gets up. He returns to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. And then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. And I had people at the rocket factory say, there's no such verse. There's no verse that says he will be called a Nazarene. True statement in a certain way. But when you look at where it comes from, it's he will be called a netzer. He will be called a little branch one. And there is absolutely a reference to a little branch one. And what Matthew meant was, he will be so fulfilled, he will be the little branch one. And the little branch one is the Messiah, who's our Savior, for whom uh, he purchased the church. It's because of the Davidic covenant that we have a church. God is being faithful to his promise to David, and because of that, Jesus comes, the little branch one, who grows up into the Messiah, who grows up into our Savior, who dies, who purchases the church, and we are the beneficiary of that because of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. There is a future for Israel because of God's faithfulness to his promises to David to one day establish a literal, eternal house, kingdom, and throne upon the earth. (sighs) Gosh, isn't this good? One little chapter is so jam packed, we just sometimes don't know what we're looking at. The importance of the Davidic covenant, it's one of those big chapters. Genesis 15, Deuteronomy 30 with the Palestinian covenant. Here we go with 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. Guaranteed, this will be on the final. There is a church today because of God's faithfulness to his promise. There is a future for Israel because of God's faithfulness to his promise, both to David. But remember, this whole covenant came about as a result of God saying no. Remember what David asked? Chapter 7. Verses 1 through 3, what did David want to do? Build a house for God. Right? That's what David wanted to do. His desire was unmet. God answers him, and I've already read this. God answered him. What was the answer? No. No. No, David, You are not going to get what you asked for. But, tell you what, you wanted to build me a house? Gosh, I love that thought. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a house. And the house I build you is going to be eternal. And it's going to have not only descendants, but it's going to be over a geopolitical entity we'll call Israel. And one of your descendants will rule from its throne forever. Remember, this came as a no. God says no to David's desire. What's David's response? But I asked you for this. What does David do? He goes and he sits in front of God in the tent. He praised God for his character He praised God for his past goodness and kindness to his people and to him. This is an unmet desire that David had. Nathan gave him the wrong answer in the evening. Came back later on and said, you know, crumb. Here's what the Lord said. Here's maybe what I should have done first is go ask the Lord. David got a no from God. Here's the principle for tonight. God has a better yes in mind whenever he says no. God has a better yes in mind whenever he says no. He told David no, but David, here's what I'm going to do, and it's going to blow your socks off. Although David probably didn't wear socks. Maybe it blew his sandals off. God has a better yes in mind whenever he says no. Let me tell you a a story, long story, Uh, when God has told me no. Uh, I graduated from the University of Kansas in 1985 with a degree in aerospace engineering. Um, I wanted to design, build, and test rocket engines. I figured I couldn't get a job unless I got a master's. Uh, Purdue, wonderful engineering school. I got in, they gave me a scholarship, they gave me a job. Laurie and I got married, we went up there, lived in married student housing. Life was sweet. Not really, but it was pretty austere. But it was great. It was great. So I sought a master's degree from Purdue. I took two classes my first semester. They said, don't get a C, and I said, no problem. I took a math class, and I took a rocket class. I got an A in my rocket class. I got a C in my math class. Now, I deserve some sympathy for the C in the math class. It was matrix linear algebra. You you think like x plus y equals 2z is nasty? Try to do it in matrices. It's really nasty, really hard, and it was obviously beyond me. So I got a C. So uh, they kicked me out. Ooh. Kicked us out. I said, ah, oh, I got it. I'll reapply. Nope, no, we're not taking you. You had your chance. The answer is no. Oh, shoot. <laughs> well, remember, I'm married. <laughs> So I have two options. One is I take Laurie and we move back to, let's say, my parents' house. (laughs) That's always fun. Uh, Or I'd have to get a job. So uh, I actually talked to a professor there, the rocket class professor, and he knew two people, and I went and interviewed one in San Jose, one in Sacramento. Uh, The one in Sacramento went really, really well. I went to the one in San Jose. I showed up. I looked good, I went in, I asked the receptionist, and she said, right-o, whoever I was supposed to meet with, Mr. Smith or someone, um, and I sat there for about half an hour, and I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith never came down to get me, and she said, oh, well, that's funny, so she calls back up there, and she gets someone, oh, I see, aha, ah, uh-huh. uh, mm, okay, uh, well, go on up and the, someone will meet you at the top of the stairs. And I thought, okay, so here comes my meeting with Mr. Smith. So I walk up the stairs and here's this other guy who I didn't know from anyone. I didn't know Mr. Smith from anyone either, but this was not Mr. Smith. And this guy says, huh, funny thing. Mr. Smith is on vacation. I said, well, I was supposed to have an interview with him today. Well, no worry, I'll do it. So we went to his cubicle. He says, so, do you like to play racquetball? I said, "Uh, yes, but it was the most off-the-wall interview I've ever had. I left, and I just thought, this is the nuttiest place that would schedule me in on time. They don't even track the guy who's going on vacation. So I, I went home, and I... Laurie and I were praying about it, and I said, you know, I really like the place in Sacramento. I hope the place in San Jose doesn't offer me a job because I don't want to go there. So the Lord was very clear, and he directed us to Sacramento. So we moved from West Lafayette, Indiana, in a little car and a big trailer, and we towed all of our stuff out to Sacramento. Great, loved it, had a great time in Sacramento. Got to design, build, and test Rocket engines, had a great time making fire, smoke, blowing stuff up. It was tremendous. So, uh, uh, so Stephen is born in 1990. We started there in 1986. So four years later, here's Stephen. And um, I come home from work one day, and I told Laurie, and this is about 1990, 91 maybe, I said, funny thing. Uh, because I'd become a Christian in 1986 because of that thing at Purdue. And I've told you that story before. And if you don't remember, sorry, you have to go back and listen to it. It's a great story. So uh, four years I've been in Christ, and I come home one day and I said, because I had been praying at the rocket factory, trust me, these guys don't go to church. Funny thing I think the Lord is calling me into full-time ministry. <laughs> you can imagine the thrill. <laughs> she says, "No, he's not." <laughs> and I said, "You're right. I wouldn't call me into ministry. I mean I wouldn't call me. I'd call I'd call a lot of other people." So I finally decide, you know, okay, the whole year goes by, and this, this thing won't leave. And I thought, maybe I just like school, and I'm bored. So I'll apply to seminary. They'll reject me because they can't take engineers, and that'll be it. So I apply, got accepted, <laughs> uh, which was crazy. And then tried to figure out, oh, my, okay, well, now am I really supposed to go? And so year number two, I went and talked to the executive pastor of our um, church there in Sacramento, who was himself a graduate of the Naval Academy in nuclear engineering, who was then called into ministry. I mean, I'm like, seriously, Lord, that's just too, that's too funny, (laughs) So I meet with this guy, and a very wise person. So he meets with me. I tell him my whole story, and he he listens very patiently and kindly, and then he looks at me at the end, and he says, Bill, hmm." he says, uh, you're not called. Um, I've been called. I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. Um, You're not called. Get back to work. I said, okay, um, maybe you didn't hear the story. Let me tell you the story again. (laughs) So I tell him the whole story again. He says, Bill, thank you so much for telling me the story again. Uh, You're not called. I've been called. I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. You're not called. Get back to work. So I thought, holy Toledo, what is this? So I go away because I don't now. I really don't know what's going on. Uh, and so anyway, this takes a whole... So, so Larry and I say to the Lord, thank you, Lord, for keeping us from making the hugest mistake in our whole entire life. Uh, if the Lord would give it to us, we'd love to have a second child. And so uh, the Lord blessed. And January of that year, we got pregnant. So this is now we're moving into the third year of me wrestling through this, third year. Uh, Josiah's on the way, and Laurie had told me, uh, she said, you know, I don't know what this thing is or where it's going, but um, I just have one rule. I said, got it. What is your one rule? She says, if we move anywhere, I'm not moving pregnant. I said, got it. (laughs) You're pregnant? We're not moving. May comes. I get laid off. I started the Tuesday after Memorial Day in 1986. I got laid off the Friday before Memorial Day in 1993. Seven years to the weekend. I am laid off. Um, our house sells. There's a whole long story. Our house, we could not sell our house because my plan was I'm going to sell the house, get the money, and that will pay for seminary. Whose plan was that? that was mine I wanted my plan to work to go to seminary the house wouldn't sell the house finally sold in 10 days after all this stuff happens house sells guess how much we made off of it none none so I say to my wife Stephen doesn't remember because he's not three years old Josiah is still riding around for free and I say here we go we're moving to Dallas this is the open door So we moved to Dallas from Sacramento. I have one month of money in the bank. I I, I have no other savings anywhere. I got no gold bars. I got nothing. I have one month of money. My plan was, we're called. Oh, oh gosh, okay, so we're leaving on that morning. We're gonna drive. My dad flew out to try to talk some sense into me. Finding that unsuccessful, we drove all the way to Dallas. That morning that we left, this executive pastor showed up at the garage, and we'd just packed the last thing on the truck, and he comes in, he has this wonderful James Earl Jones voice, and he came in, he said, may I pray for us? (laughs) And I thought, what is this? So he prays, wonderful prayer, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I agree with all that, thank you, thank you for praying. And so he finishes, and my dad and this other fellow who was there walked out. So I'm standing there with him, and I said, help me understand this. Not called or called? And he said, called. But I, and I looked just like some of you. Huh? Called. He said, if I would have told you you were called, you might have stepped out on my word instead of God's. Now you're stepping out on God's word and timing, and your trust is in him because this way is too hard, and if you would have stepped out because of me, wrong. He says, now you're in his hands, totally and completely. You're called. Move to Dallas. I have one month of money in the bank. Right. My plan was sell the house, take all this money, and pay for seminary. No. We show up to Dallas, one month of money in the bank. I have no job. Did I mention that? I have no job. I have no job. And by the way, I have a mostly pregnant, almost done pregnant wife. You just got to get this picture. And it's about 154 degrees in Dallas when we pulled in. So I I got out. I got to find a job. And, and so I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and two weeks, I'm, I'm in seminary. I'm going to seminary the first two weeks. I cannot find a job to save my life. And I'm thinking, I'm down to two weeks of money. Really seriously, two weeks, I got no spares. This is it. Well, I would sent a letter in Sacramento. I sent it. My aunt and uncle lived in Dallas, and I said, there's got to be some churches who'd like to hire me, right? I've told you this story before. She gave me a list of seven churches. I sent a letter to seven churches. Basically this, hi, my name is Bill. I used to be a rocket scientist. The Lord has called me into ministry. I need a job at your church. Please contact me. And this is snail mail, right? We don't have email yet. This is snail mail. These letters go out. What do you know? I never heard anything. We're in Dallas. One of my letters, someone had responded to it, and it went to Sacramento, and then it followed us back to Dallas, and it was a church in Dallas that said, "Well, we have one open position in children's ministry, which I've told you this story before." And I thought, I laid the uh, letter down, because I do not want to be in children's ministry. I already have two. Thank you. Lord, you and I have an agreement. I'll teach adults. I'll teach college. But below that with the whole pie-in-the-face stuff and eating goldfish, that's not me. Not going there, not doing it. So I need a master's from Purdue. The Lord says no. And no, you can't get back in. I want to go to seminary my way, right? My way would have been real cushy and would have required almost zero faith or trust in God. Guess what he says? No. We're not going to do your plan. We're going to do my plan. I get to this place, this children's ministry role. I went in. It is one of those great things. I really connected with the children's minister. And the next thing I know is I have a job. We pulled into town on August 2nd. Our money ran out on September 2nd. September 1st, I started the new job. okay, Lord, I need out of children's ministry. (laughs) No. I finish up seminary. I'm going through, I'm going through. I had three professors within about two weeks come up to me and say, um, they felt like you need to stay and pursue a doctorate. I'm like, no, no. See, Laurie and I are going to go back to Sacramento and we're going to plant a church. The Lord says, yeah, no, (laughs) no, that's not what you're going to do. Um, What you're going to do is you're going to wait for me because I have a place for you. Mm -hmm. So all of that starts in May of 1998, and it finally winds up with me sending a resume to this little church. It's the smallest church when I got here, the smallest church I had ever been a part of. Since being a Christian, in 1998, Christ Chapel, a thousand people, smallest church I'd ever been a part of, and I thought, Lord, what is this? So I send my resume, and I'm the executive pastor. That's what my resume is. So Ted finally gets it in his hand. He calls me. I've told you this story before. It's really funny if he's standing here because he would, he would go. That's exactly what happened. Here was our first phone call. Remember this? Hi, Bill, Ted Kitchens, Senior Pastor of Christ Chapel. Hi, Ted, thank you so much for calling me. I got your resume. Great, great. Thank you so much. You know, what are you you thinking about that? He goes, well, my really close and dear friend, Chad Windsor, just passed from cancer in May of 1998. Um, We are in no way, shape, or form ready to hire an executive pastor. And besides that, you're too young. Somebody just thumped my chest. (laughs) What have you just heard? You are not getting this job. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What was that last one? (sighs) I said, excuse me, sir. This is our very first conversation. Excuse me, sir. The issue is not my age. The issue is one of giftedness and experience, and I am absolutely gifted and have the experience to do this. The real issue before us is one of trust. Will you trust me to do this? This is our very first conversation. Well, guess what Ted doesn't like either? (laughs) But Ted has some of that self control thing. He says, Well, anyway. This is what he said. Well, anyway. What interests us in you is your time in children's ministry. So the Lord's saying, no, you are not going back to Sacramento, and I'm sending you to Fort Worth, which at the time seemed like the dark side of the moon. (laughs) I'm not going back to Sacramento. The answer was no. He wanted me instead to come to Christ Chapel, and I wouldn't want it any other way. I has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. I never imagined such a church as this existed. I never imagined a people such as this existed. I never imagined a role like this existed. I knew nothing and the Lord says, trust me. I know what I'm doing and he brings me to a place and to a people and to a role that I would not trade for anything. It has been so much bigger, better. I I run out of adjectives. Wild horses could not drag me away from here. What has God said no About to you. This life that God has given me through a series of no's had a much better yes attached to it that I could not have even dreamt about. The same is true for you. What has God said no about to you? Because when God says no to you, I want you to focus on his character instead of your, in quotes, loss. Your loss may be exactly the thing he's going to use to build the bridge to take you where he wants you. I want you to focus on he is good and kind. He is merciful and gracious. He is wise and omnisciently farsighted. He knows what he's doing. I am a testimony, an eyewitness, and I could have told you that story for two hours. I left out so many things that are God things. He knows what he's doing. Does he always show it to you ahead of time? He does not. (laughs) But I got to imagine, like a father who gives his child or a mother who gives her child a surprise present that's, exactly, that's beyond what the child had even dreamt existed, and that child is so excited, what's the first thing that child does besides want to play with the box, right? What do they want to do? They run to their mom or to their dad and they hug him. Why does he do all this? So that we run to him and we hug him we say daddy I never even dreamt something like this existed like David who am I and who is my family that you would do this for us I wouldn't have even called me in the ministry and he says Bill I love you here you go oh my goodness who am I I'm no one, trust me, I am no one. If he'll do it for me, he'll do it for you. Focus on God's character instead of on your loss. Focus on his past actions in your life, how he's intervened for good in your life before, and remember that God has a better yes in mind for you whenever he says no. Remember that. If you remember nothing else from tonight, except for parts of my silly story. Remember that God has a better yes in mind for you whenever he says no. For next time, read Second Samuel 8 through 10. Another great story and some stuff for us to learn. Thank you for indulging me, giving me another few minutes. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, I can testify uh, to my friends, to my brothers and sisters, that this is who you are and how you do things. Uh, I do not understand, and I can't see the future, but you just want me to trust you and to walk with you, and as you bring gift after gift, um, I want to be able to worship you and praise you and thank you and be reminded, who am I? Who is my family that you would be so kind, so generous, so Faithful and loving to us. And believe that if you can do it for us, you will do it for anyone else. We love you. We're amazed by you. We are in awe of you. And tonight we say together, we worship you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.